I'm going to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles again to Psalm 119. If it's not already there, you want to turn to Psalm 119. And I'd like you to look with me at the 48th verse as a way of introducing our study this morning. If you're new to the Bible, you open up the Bible in the middle and you're probably in the book of Psalms. Psalm 119.48 says, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I wonder how many of you have ever read that before. Lots of you, I know. I wonder how many of you have ever thought about that before. What is the psalmist saying? He's talking about the written revelation of God's Word and and he's saying, I lift up my hands toward your commandments which I love. He's using verbiage that is typically reserved by the psalmist for the sanctuary in the Old Testament where the believer would raise up his hands in worship to God. And he borrows that image And he says, I lift up my hands to your written revelation, which I love. What is that about? Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought about that? Raising your hands to the Bible. This morning, I would like to have us talk about why the psalmist would do that, why we might feel compelled to do that if we don't currently. And to make it very simple, we'll look at 11 words. 11 words that I hope stir you up inside and compel you to want to feel like the psalmist. If I can put it in a little bit of a trite way, 11 words that I hope when put together will cause you to at least have an impulse when you see a Bible to want to raise your hands in worship. The reason the psalmist says what he says is because he sees the Bible as what it is, the written revelation of God. And for the psalmist, there is such a close association of Torah, God's Word, God's revelation, and God Himself, that when He hears the Bible, His response is worship to God because God has revealed Himself. I trust this might meddle with us a little bit. It might push us a little bit beyond our comfort zones. We might think, well, if we do that, that will be bibliolatry. I would suggest to you, even while we shouldn't worship the Bible... If we're never accused of doing such a thing, we probably don't look very much like this inspired writer. Because he's seeing such a direct association because he knows what the Bible is. So let's look at these 11 words. In one sense, I think this is just a good review for us as Omaha Bible Church who take Bible for granted so many times. I probably own 50 Bibles. And very seldom do I feel compelled when I see one of my 50 Bibles to raise my hands and worship to God. I don't know about you. It really should be that way. The first word is inspiration. 
The first word that should compel us, I trust, to want to worship God, maybe even raise your hands toward, toward the very Bible itself, is inspiration. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 is really the classic text. And so if you're going to find two places in your Bible this morning, you'll want to find Psalm 119 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you're new to the Bible, find a table of contents, maybe in the Bible we just gave you, and there'll be a page number for 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and you'll see inspiration. Now, as you're turning there, remember when in Christianity, historically, we're talking about inspiration, we're not talking about what happens to you as the reader, even though that might happen. You read the Bible and and it's inspiring. You want to worship God, and, and that happens, but that's not what historically we mean as Christians. Inspiration has to do with the origin of the Bible, that it comes from God. Yes, it might inspire you, but that's not what we're talking about. It actually comes from Him. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, or as the New American Standard and others translated, inspired by God. That's where we get our word for inspiration. Breathe out by God. If you want to be uh, technical, it's, it's two Greek words put together into one word in the original language. And it's thea, where we get theos, God, theology, and pneustos, breathed out, breath. It, it is God's breathed out word. And if we understand that, we're starting to understand why the psalmist, in the presence of Scripture, would find himself compelled to want to worship God because he has the word that comes from God's mouth. It's divine origin. I know this. I've known this since I was a baby Christian. Most of you know this. But what ends up happening is we know this, but it doesn't stir us to know this, to say, I'm going to do something about it. I have to worship God because I have His revelation. God has spoken. God is a speaking God. We can even put it that way. Divine revelation. Divine origin. There are other passages we could look at, but that will be enough for now for this exercise. God speaks, and His speech has been inscripturated, and it should cause us to want to worship Him. And we probably aren't that way so much. Obviously, I'm burdened by it. The title of the message in the bulletin is Raised Your Hands to the Bible Lately. Let's move on to a second word. The second word is authority. Authority. I trust that when you see authority in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the next time you see a Bible, you might feel compelled to respond to it a little bit differently. The word authority isn't used, but look at 3.16 again. All Scripture is breathed out by none other than God. That has everything to do with authority, right? Because God, by definition of the fact that He's God, not just a God, but 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 He is God, God Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, God who is the Redeemer, God who is sovereign and in control and providentially is controlling all things. We have a word that comes from Him. That means it has authority. That means it is above us. No wonder the psalmist would want to raise his hands up toward it because it is above. It is is authoritative. It is supreme. When I think of the Bible, I want to think of authority. Next to the Bible, probably the most classic, having stood the test of time kind of book about the subject of inspiration is a book by B.B. Warfield. 
Inspiration and Authority of Scripture. Maybe the hardest book I've ever read. But he said this in not very difficult language. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. You don't have to read his volume now. (laughs) That's what he's defending on a scholarly level. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Inspiration. But it has so much to do with authority because we're talking about God. We're not talking about a church council. We're not talking about elders and deacons making decisions. Breathed out by God. And this is why later, if you keep reading in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and then chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 2, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, who's a pastor, he says, preach the Word. We've got the inscripturated revelation from God who's in charge, who's the authority. Now, preach that Scripture. Preach that Word. That's why he's not telling Timothy, Timothy, share. He's not telling Timothy, you know, make suggestions. It's an authoritative from God revelation. And so, Timothy, as the herald, you show up and what you do is you preach. Keruso. You make authoritative declarations. Not because you're an egomaniac, Timothy, or preaching your own ideas, your own philosophy or whatever. If you're preaching, you preach the Word, it says in 4.2, and the Word is authoritative because it comes from God. 3.16. I would love to go off on a pastoral tangent and talk about uh, the, the, the craziness of preaching, which has to do with authority, something other than the Word. If I preach something other than the Word, then I'm saying a lot about myself because I'm telling you with authority what you should do based upon my opinion or someone else's. That's not what he's getting at here. The the idea is since it is the Bible, since it is God's revelation of Himself, you preach it without apology. I don't know. Are you feeling compelled to, to, to... Are you feeling that magnetism? You know, You're holding your Bible so you're not feeling it, but... I just want to say, yes, God, this is amazing. It's, it's your revelation of yourself. Let's move on to a third word, and the third word is grace. Grace is the third word that I hope causes you when you, you walk into that bookstore maybe afterward and you see all those Bibles there, man, you're just going to be losing control. We have a little altar set up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, but with an agenda to try to make a point, though. Grace is the next word. We know what grace is. Most of us, grace is something we don't deserve. Grace is something we don't earn. When you go to work for your 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, at the end of the week, your boss doesn't say, I have a gift for you. And passes you your check. Or you get that bank transfer into your account and it says, you know, here's a wonderful gift. You earned it. Well, what what have we earned in in the plan of God? Well... Romans is pretty clear, the New Testament, the Old Testament is pretty clear as well, that we are by nature rebels, that we have violated God's just standards. What we've earned is we've earned just condemnation. God doesn't owe it to us to tell us who He is. But what does He do? He's gracious. And He gives us His book that tells us, that interprets life for us, that tells us about where the world came from, tells us about what His holy standards are, tells us and points out to us how we break them so we see that we have a problem, which, by the way, is grace. 
because now we know we have a problem. And then he tells us about his perfect son who came to live a perfect life on our behalf because we're not perfect and we're rebels. He's not. He lives a righteous life for us. Not only that, he dies a sinner's death for us and then rises again from the dead for us and tells people to come and embrace him for salvation, justification, propitiation, whatever kind of big word you'd like to use. All of those things. God is so gracious. God could, God didn't know it to us, you know? Think about it in those terms. It's an act of grace for God to say, okay, I'm going to step down and I'm going to reveal myself to them. I'm going to tell them just how sinful they are. I'm going to tell them how great my son is. I'm going to tell them about hope and salvation. The Bible is a gracious, gracious, gracious gift to us, even where it makes us uncomfortable. To the point where in Psalm 119, the psalmist sees this. Verse 72, he says, The law of your mouth, that's that inspiration idea, is better to me than thousands of of gold and silver pieces. Psalm 119, 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. And then our verse, verse 48, I lift up my hands toward your word, which I love. He gets it. This is a gracious gift. He didn't earn it. He doesn't deserve it. And God gave it anyway. And he's just saying, I value this more than everything else. I might have other hobbies. I might value my marriage. I might value my my children. I might value my occupation. But above gold, yes, above fine gold, above everything else is your word. I prize it because it is your word. I love that. Just think about it. Even the, the rudimentary, basic, simple fact that God has spoken in a way that we can understand. God speaking so that we can understand. That's grace. And it should be a kind of grace that makes us want to say, Oh, yes, God, you are so gracious. It doesn't illustrate the point exactly, but just to make the point about how we, how we should find ourselves responding to such a gracious revelation. It makes me think about famous people. Here we're talking about God who has spoken, and so we're drawn to worshiping Him. But in my life, while I haven't met that many famous people, when I have met famous people, there's something inside of me that's just drawn to them. You know, and, and then I want to call my friends. I just talked to Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, we talked about his Hummer. You know, it was cool. I was his security guard. Imagine that, <laughs> looking up to him. Or, or, or other things. A few, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, Molly and I were in Nashville. And we're in a little tiny cafe on a Monday morning, having gone there for me to preach at a church and a conference. And we're in this little tiny cafe, size of our bookstore probably, maybe a half a dozen people in the room. And, and my friend Byron Yon said, hey, Pat, look over there. And you go. It's Nicole Kidman and her shrimp husband, Keith Urban, who's a chump. No, <laughs> you're like... Man, Nicole Kidman, she's famous, you know, and you're kind of, your heart goes up and you think, you know, in one sense you're kind of wanting to go, oh, Nicole Kidman, Keith Urban. There's nothing wrong with that. They're famous. They're, they're, they're above me as far as fame and, and impact and things that they've done. 
Or I could make it more sanctified and be theological and say, you know, you know last week I was taking a class and, at Ligonier and, and you know, I was texting my, my elder friends, hey, I'm having, I'm having dinner with Sinclair Ferguson, perhaps the best preacher alive today, you know. He got the filet. <laughs> Just got done talking to R.C. Sproul about the Manhattan Declaration. And there's something in me that wants to just go, I love these people. I'm compelled because of what they've done to pay this special homage to them. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with that. It just proves the point that where there are those who are above us, maybe they've given something to us, the natural response would be one of awe and adoration and acknowledgement. God has spoken why, why don't I text my, my friends tomorrow morning when I sit down with a cup of coffee to read my Bible and read about what a great, great, great Redeemer Christ is and, and, and how He has made perfect atonement. Man, can you believe this? And God told me this. Not because I'm some kind of whack job who wants to be on TV, but because I got it right here. And, and, and sometimes new believers are like this. I love it when a new believer says to me, Hey, Pat. Did you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back? And I want to go, you no, know, you're kidding me, you know? And, you're, and you say, I did know that. Isn't that amazing? Did, did you know that the Bible says that, that, that the very reason we believe the gospel is, is, is because God works in our hearts first? And I did know that. And I love it that they're excited. And then I'm convicted, why am I not excited? Why am I not feeling like they're feeling? Because even though they might not express it like this, they're like the psalmist, and they're saying, I raise my hands to your commandments, which I love. It's a gracious gift from God that we know this stuff. And it tells us a lot about God and how He should be responded to. Well, the illustrations could keep going and going, but I think you get the idea. Number four, a fourth word is the word salvation. Back in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 3, 16 and 17, but then verse 15, in the same context, tells us about salvation. Look there in verse 15. How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Talking about Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy. This inscripturated revelation is the very thing that can make you wise for salvation. It'll tell you about your sin. It'll tell you about God's righteous judgment that you deserve. It'll tell you about Christ's perfect atonement. It'll tell you about how you must believe in Him and Him alone. It's there. It's the answer book for redemption. So much so that that 1 Peter... Listen to this. 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been born again which we saw and have seen, we even talked about it last Sunday, John 3 makes it clear that to be born again is a sovereign work of the Spirit that you don't orchestrate. Okay, Jesus talks about the, the Spirit going like the wind and, and you can't control it, you can't see it, but it goes where it wants to. I'm paraphrasing. He says in 1 Peter 1.23, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Sovereign work of the Spirit. But, but here we're learning from Peter that, that it is tied to Scripture. That God uses the means of His Word even to bring about the new birth which will lead to a person believing in Christ. What a valued treasure. It's no wonder that the, the compelling movement is 
praise be to God for giving us this kind of gift. Salvation. It's not that the book itself saves. Read John 5. The Jews sort of thought it did. In and of itself, it didn't save. But it tells us about Christ. And God even uses it to bring about the new birth. I love it. Number five, a fifth word that moves us, I hope, to want to raise our hands to God. Unity. Unity is another word. Salvation is number four. Number five is unity. Starting with the unity of the Bible itself, it's pretty fascinating to think about. The Bible, written over about 1,500 years. All different kinds of authors, from, from Peter the fisherman to Luke the medical doctor, and read their vocabulary, especially like if you're studying Greek or something, and, and you, can, you can smell fish in one guy's Greek vocabulary. And you've got the medical side on the other with the details. It's very different. Not only that, you have all these different genres. You have poetry and you have narrative and, and you have epistles and you have all of this different kind of diversity. But what you also have is a unity that is unmistakable. Starting in Genesis, moving all the way to Revelation, if you will, the new Genesis with Christ as the hero of all of it. Complimenting, 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 complimenting. You just take the four Gospels as an example. Four different cameras filming the same event, different angles. And by the grace of God, He's given us the four different angles so that we can have a fuller picture of things. Same Christ, same salvation. The Bible is unified. It also produces unity. Think about the unity here. You know, not too many of us are going to say, hi, want to be best friends, get matching t-shirts and go on vacation? You know, you say that to me, I never want to go on vacation with you. Um, (laughs) You know, you make me really nervous. Uh, (laughs) You think about the differences here. Some of you have come from different countries. Some of you like certain kinds of sports, other sports, no sports. All different kinds of backgrounds. And we can be united because of that. Because of the cross, which is central to the Scripture. And we come together and we set all those other things aside and we come together because we agree on this common confession from Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's awesome. And sometimes we do end up going on vacation together. That's just a byproduct. We're not here about that. We're here about Christ, but the, the Bible does that for us. I love to be able to get on an airplane. Actually, I don't. But when I do have to get on an airplane and fly to the other side of the world, once I'm there, I love it. In the sense that you have all of these, you go to a pastor's conference and all of these men come from all of these different places and they come there and from word one practically, the Bible, Christ, Revelation of Him just does this. Unified. Sometimes you need a translator, but that's the only thing in the way. And there's great fellowship forged. I love running into some of these guys uh, that, that I've met on the other side of the planet somewhere else, and, and they have that like look in their eye. They're like, yeah, you know, you taught us the Bible, and, and, and there's that camaraderie, and there's that fellowship that's there. 
Yes, there's division in the church, and sometimes it's because of our being unconverted. Other times it's just because of our sin. But the problem isn't with the Bible. As a matter of fact, this is just sort of a a for free comment. In 1 Corinthians 11, it even talks about how division is necessary because it does prove a thing or two. But it has nothing to do with the Bible. Like I said, I was in this class last week with 11 other doctoral students. And, uh, you know, the first five minutes, maybe you're kind of sizing each other up and see, you know, you don't really know people, you're a little uncomfortable. By the end of the first five minutes, you're ready to go to war together. Pray for each other. Spend time together. Why? It's the Bible unifying us together because we have the one true God's revelation of Himself. Produces great, great unity. And we even see it in our own body. A sixth word is the word maturity. Maturity. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Look at this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. We already saw that there. So it comes from God. But then notice what happens. And profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's that's about bringing about maturity, right? That the man of God may be competent or adequate, equipped for every good work. These are maturity words. The Bible, God's Word, teaches us so that we become more mature. Why do you send your kids to school other than free daycare? You send your kid to school because you want them to be taught because your aim is maturity. So we have God's revelation of Himself so that it can be used for things like teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And then He tells us why. So that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. There He's talking about the pastor. But the pastor is going to use that very same work that equips him to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness as well. So we all end up maturing. What we don't need is the next gimmick that's coming. Boy, we've got a lot of of baby Christians, so what we need is let's find out what the hottest thing off the press is from the Christian Booksellers Convention, and then we can be mature. Well, that's the last thing we need based upon what the Bible itself is saying. Competent, equipped for every good work. What we need is a good dose of Bible. That's what's going to take us. That's what's going to take me from, you know, you know, doing this, uh, Pat Avendroth, baby Christian in diapers. Bad sight, I know, but better at that than me to mention you in diapers. So you know, that's, that's where we all start. Thumb sucking, all we can handle is milk, and there we are in our diapers making a mess of everything. So what are we going to do? What we're going to do is give the Word Give the Word, give the Word, pray for the Spirit's work so that it takes, takes hold in the heart. Let the Scripture, even as it says in this verse, kind of interesting, it's not it's going to be painless. In verse 16, teaching, reproof, don't like that. Correction, don't like that. For training in righteousness. Okay, that, that, that sounds a little bit better. Why? So you can get out of diapers. You can get past formula. So you can be weaned and so you can have a better appetite and be growing spiritually. But the key is Bible, 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 Bible. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's a word for transforming, radically transforming the soul. How does that happen? It happens from the Word. It happens from the Word. And so, again, I feel compelled to to say, Oh yeah, just another Bible. Just another Bible. 
We have so many Bibles. Perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't feel this. Just by way of illustration, I wonder what would happen if all of you turned your Bibles in today. And then come back tomorrow, any Bibles you have in your home, turn off the internet, bring all your Bibles. It's just an illustration, by the way. (laughs) For those of you who are believers and, and, and you love Christ, you would have a hard week of it. And maybe for the next month, let's just say by way of illustration, no Bibles allowed. And the time where you will hear the Bible, you will hear the Word of God that does all of these things we've been seeing is when you come here. And maybe we won't even have a sermon. Sermons are biblical. The Bible talks about sermons. But let's not even have a sermon. Let's just have clear articulate scripture reading. And I think it would be profound. If I were the listener, I think no doubt there would be something in me that would compel me to want to put my hands up toward that Bible and say, oh, I raise my hands to your commandments, which I love. Because it's the key to my, my maturity. It's, it's, it's the key to all of these things. Now the bad news is it won't really work it could for a time and think about what would have happened even in the early church where not everybody had their copy let alone 50 copies I gotta go I gotta be with the people of God which is a commandment but you know what I gotta go there to hear the scripture I'm at least going to be praying that you have that kind of mindset although I want you to keep your Bible Because we know there are churches around the globe where people don't read their Bibles. They're not interested in the Bible. And every week, the one time they hear the Bible is during the Scripture reading. And it doesn't produce life in and of itself. But it's good to think about, don't you think? I want to have that kind of hunger, that kind of desire. And it's rooted and grounded in what do I think of this book to begin with? It's God's Word. It's authoritative. It's life-giving. It is maturing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to another. Number seven on this list of 11. And the word is discernment. Discernment. Discernment means being able to tell between something that's right and something that's wrong. Something that's good and something that's bad. Something that is honoring to God, not honoring to God. Acts 17.11 is kind of the classic narrative about this issue with the Bereans. In Acts 17.11 it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Makes you want to not be a Thessalonian. Makes you want to be a Berean. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What is so commendable about the Bereans... They listened to the Apostle Paul teach truth about God. And and they liked it. They were compelled to listen. They were eager to listen. But at the same time, they had one finger on the Bible, if you will. Or maybe it was what they'd memorized. And they had one finger on the Bible that was up here. And they were being discerning. They were being discerning. Where did the source of discernment come from? It came from the Scriptures. Examining the Scriptures. 
I think this is probably why the Apostle Paul had to say what he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. Test everything. In other words, Thessalonians, be discerning. In other words, Thessalonians, be more like the Bereans. There's a a context, there's a background why why he needed to say, examine everything, test everything. Just like the Bereans did. What's the source? Source is pat. I don't like that very much. That's false doctrine. Why? Because I say so. Because it doesn't conform to my tradition. That's arrogance. But biblical discernment isn't arrogance because you've got a finger on the verse and you're saying, yep, that's true, that's right. Jesus did come here to live a perfectly righteous life and and to die a sinner's death on our behalf. And, And if you trust in Him and Him alone, God will declare you righteous. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like Romans 5, Romans 4, Romans 3. That's sound doctrine. We'll let that guy talk in our church. Somebody says, well, Jesus actually didn't come here to die a sinner's death. The Father didn't pour His wrath out on His Son because that would be cosmic child abuse. With a finger on the verse, 2 Corinthians 5. That doesn't match what the Bible says. That's false doctrine. That person's a heretic. You say, how dare you say that? Say what? He just gave you Bible. Evaluation. Discernment. See, we, we actually need to know the Bible to be discerning. Otherwise, what do we say? We say things like, well, I feel like that's not true. Right? What's with that? And when we talk like that, who's in charge? Who's the authority? Pat and Pat's feelings. I'm feeling compelled to want to do like a mini tangential talk about how we talk about truth and thinking and we call it feelings, but I might use self-control to not do that. Just listen to how you even talk when you talk about the Bible. If you're talking about things that are clear in the Bible, I, I would say the Bible says. Or you could even say, I think the Bible says or means this by what it says. And that leads to feelings. Feelings like, I want to raise my hands to the Bible. But you don't start with the feeling. Because now how can anybody be right? Your feelings versus my feelings. The psalmist, or in Thessalonians, it wasn't a matter of Thessalonians. They were examining their feelings daily to see if these things were so. Where would that end? They were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And no doubt it made them feel good. Feelings based upon facts. Let's move on to another word. The word is, for number eight, the word is clarity. Clarity. The Bible's pretty clear. When people say, well, you just can't understand the Bible, you know, and there's so many different translations, and, well... There are a lot of different translations, but it's still pretty clear regardless of the translation. And oh, by the way, we could actually look at Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. It's a smokescreen, sadly. Let me do a little test with you. You tell me, clear, not clear. For there is one God. 
Clear or not clear? How does it, what does that verse mean to you? <laughs> and there is one mediator. Clear or not clear? Yeah, pretty clear between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Clear or not clear? It is so clear. How about another one? John 14, 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What do you think? Uh, that's, that's probably pretty clear. Jesus probably gets, you know, an A when it comes to clarity and what it says. Um, and guess what it means in Greek? You know, it's the same thing. How about Romans 6? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Clear or not clear? That's just really clear. You should go through the Bible and, and it's just so clear what it's saying. Not only that, it's so clear about Christ first and foremost. Oh yes, there are things that are difficult. There are things that are hard to understand. Peter says some of Paul's things are hard to understand. Second Peter. But he doesn't say it's all hard to understand or impossible to understand. And so there is great clarity in the Bible. Now complementing that is number nine, complexity. Complexity. And that's where, again, the Apostle Paul's writing, some things are hard to understand. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 16 would be an example of that. But then just think about the complexity of the Bible. On the clarity side, we can go to children's church and go in there and listen to the teachers in there. And they're making the gospel clear. And they're keeping it simple. But the complex side is the fact that we've got over 1,500 years what, about 40 different authors off the top of my head, different literary styles, different literary genres. You have poetic, you have narrative, you have apocalyptic and all these things. And you think, you know what, five, you can understand it, but, but by the time you're 50, you can't understand it anymore. Well, you can, it's just more complex. And if you live to be 105, you're still going to think it's complex because we're talking about the revelation of God. Yes, He can step down to our level. And guess what? This might be revolutionary, I know. But God has the ability to communicate and make Himself clear. But it doesn't mean it's Time magazine There's a reason why God gave to His church gifted teachers to help us with some things that aren't clear. It's a very complex book. Number 10, and 11 is the best, so that's really where we're driving. Number 10, another word that, that I hope you hear, you think about the Bible in relationship to this word, and again, uh, you, you feel compelled like the psalmist to worship God like you didn't before because we're not just talking about any book, we're talking about the holy book. And that word is perfection. Number 10, 10th word that should solicit praise to you, perfection. Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That's another synonym there for perfect, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is perfect. And remember in Psalm 19, like Psalm 119, he's using synonyms for Bible. So he uses law, testimony, scripture. Here it's law. Perfect. Transforming the soul, radically changing everything, bringing about maturity. And this is where we talk about things like inerrancy. And we would be a church that believes in biblical inerrancy. There are no errors in the original manuscripts. Because of verses like Psalm 19.7 and because of all of the evidence that we have. 
is hard just to do highlights. I want to preach 11 different sermons and be the schizophrenic pastor. Not really. Let's leave perfection alone and inerrancy alone for now. I just want to do a test and see how I've been doing so far. Oh, not too good. Oh, I see there's a little... This is a pretty good sermon. There's about four people that have responded the right way. I resign. I quit. (laughs) Makes me want to have one of those big poles, you know, and hold it up high and like some kind of big... Anyway, I don't really want to do that. There is something, if you're really thinking about it here, that should affect this, that should cause you to think differently... It should cause you to feel differently. It should compel you. You know, maybe put it this way. True evidence, if we, if we believe in inerrancy or not, or inspiration or not, or these, these things that we would really go to the wall for, maybe a true litmus of if we really believe it or not is our worship. Oh, yes, I believe in inerrancy. I was there when they formulated the Chicago Statement. I believe in inspiration. And it affects me zero the way I worship God. I say, you don't really believe it, do you? I like the psalmist sometimes because... And I say the psalmist, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119 definitively. Some think it was David because he wrote Psalm 19 and they're so similar. Some people think it was actually Daniel. We just don't know because it doesn't say who the human author is. I like the psalms though, whether they're the psalms of David or an unnamed psalmist. I, I, one one appeal, appealing factor to me is how, how should I say this, how, how messy they are. No, I mean, in one sense, I don't want Psalm 11948 to be in there. Because it kind of messes with me in its messiness. And, and not only that, you know, I hold my hands up to your commandments. Well, I know that's what you do in, in, in worship in the Old Testament in the sanctuary. And not only that, to your commandments, which I love. Oh, man, now they're going to accuse us of worshiping the Bible. kind of like the tension you feel. Because I like my nice, neat little boxes where there's no tension ever. And he's saying, if you will, by application, Pat, push it a little bit. Your boxes are too nice and too neat. Why don't you emote like this to God in His revelation of Himself? Number 11 is the best of the best of the best. The best word you will hear. And the word is Christ. The word is Christ. When you see a Bible, you hear the Bible read. I hope there's something in you that wants to raise your hands in worship because when you see this Bible, you hear this Bible, it is about Christ. Central, first, foremost. And I'm not saying that because Jesus believed in inspiration, that should cause us to want to worship God. It's true, by the way. I could have mentioned that earlier. What did Jesus say when he was tempted? He said, man shall not live by what? 
bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of whom? Out of God. Yes, Jesus absolutely believed in inspiration. We could have gone to those kinds of passages, but that's not what I'm saying at this point in time. What I'm saying is, Bible, Bible, Christ. Not that the Bible is Christ, but the Bible is about Christ. It's pointing us to Him, pointing us to Him, pointing us to Him. It is, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, where you find your hope, where you find your hope for your miserable, sinful, dysfunctional life, and I find my hope. Where, where when I'm going to sin and sin more and I could never save myself by my own merits ever, 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 ever. Where is my hope? My hope is in Christ. And, and, and how do I learn about Christ? It's the Word. It's the Scripture. Listen to Matthew 25, 54. Matthew 20, excuse me, Matthew 26, 54. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Context, well-meaning people trying to keep Jesus from going to Calvary, trying to do what they think is the right thing, and it's saying, wait a minute! How can there be redemption? How can there be the fulfillment of the Scriptures? They've all been pointing to this event. You just don't understand it. But it's all been aiming us toward this one climactic event, which is the high point of all of human history. It's where you find your hope, hope of redemption, hope of forgiveness. It's in the cross of Christ. How will the Scripture be fulfilled if it's not for that? And the answer is it can't be. The high point, the central figure in it all ends up being Christ. How about this? After His resurrection, Luke 24, 27. Jesus does a little discipleship 101. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so Old Testament, all that stuff that's not relevant, you know. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How about that? All right, we're going to have a hermeneutics class, boys. How to interpret the Bible 101. Gather around. Oh, let's start in Genesis. It's about me. 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 It's about me, is what Christ taught them. Why would we, as sophisticated professional people, come into contact with a book like this and feel compelled to say, God, your revelation, I love it. (laughs) And the answer is Christ, Christ, Christ. Or how about Christ, 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 Christ. That's why. That's why. We have no hope without it. But we have a sure hope because of it. It changes everything. So let's be Omaha Bible Church. But in effect, we're saying we're Omaha Christ Church is what we're saying, is what we should be saying. We're about Christ ultimately, and Christ is the one who saves. He uses His Word to bring about the new birth. 
Christ is the one who sanctifies. He uses His Word to bring about sanctification. But ultimately, it's even tied to His atoning death, by the way. We're saying it's about Christ, it's about Christ, it's about Christ, it's about Christ, it's about Christ. And built in us, as those who've been created by God, is this, is this desire to worship and this desire to pay homage. I know that it's in you. Because you're going to watch the Vikings game today, right? And for those of you who think, you know, I'm not interested in what's happening on TV there. Well, you do it somewhere else. I remember when Molly and I went to the U2 concert in Chicago, United Center. I don't know, it holds 35,000 people or some, some, it's a lot of people. You know, and there they are and, and, and Bono is singing and, and everybody in the whole place, you know, you know, whatever they're singing, whatever song it is, I won't try to sing it. And last Sunday we sang that song that talked about the whole earth is filled with your glory. Talking about God. The whole United Center was filled with His glory. We were all acknowledging you too, Bono. He is above us. He has given us such a good gift in these great songs that we love. And I'm not here to throw Bono under the bus when it comes to singing his songs. His theology is terrible, but that's another sermon. He was above, he was above us. Admirable. Honorable. Has given us good gifts in music according to my taste. But my point in bringing it up is, is it's proof that it's built in us to acknowledge someone who's above us who gives us good things that we can't come up with ourselves. And whether it's in the arena of football or concerts or some other form of the arts or your favorite thing, whatever it is, there's something in us that we don't hold anything back and we acknowledge superiority. Nothing wrong with that. But there's something terribly, 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 terribly wrong if there is a God and He has spoken and you profess to know Him and it elicits zero response from you. There is something terribly, terribly wrong. Let's be like the psalmist by the grace of God. We hear from God. We respond in praise and worship to God for being such a great, great, great giver of great gifts. That's my prayer. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together in the name of your great son, Jesus. And we're thankful that you had all of history pointing toward him and his perfect work. And we get to read about it in different complexities, in different ways, different cultures. But yet we see how the different pieces fit together and form together and it all comes into a great climax with Christ coming to earth and living and dying and rising again from the dead and promising to come back. Lord, may we be the kind of men and women who respond to You 
from the very core of our being for being such a gracious and amazing God. In Jesus' name, amen.